Hi, I'm Valerie Loveless, and I'm just an everyday Latter-day Saint. I go to work, I have a family, I try to keep the commandments and get my scripture study in. I have a thirst for more gospel knowledge, but not always the time. If you're like me, then join me on my podcast, Everyday Saints. I'm going to take us into the topics that matter to you, pull them apart, listen to the experts and the authors, and keep you up to speed on what it is that Everyday Saints are talking about, reading, and listening to. Just search your podcast app for Everyday Saints and the Angel Moroni thumbnail. Hello, and welcome to the Cedar Fort Come Follow Me podcast with David Ridges. I'm Casey Griffiths, and I am your guest host for the week. I'm also the author of 50 Relics of the Restoration, along with Mary Jane Woodger. And this week we get to talk about section 98 to 101 of the Doctrine and Covenants. And this is one of those Come Follow Me blocks where you got a lot to cover in a short amount of time. So let's dive in. If we were to kind of give an overall theme to these sections, it might be, why do bad things happen to good people? Section 98 was given just two weeks after the church printing office was destroyed in Jackson County, Missouri. Joseph Smith knew about the increasing tensions between the members of the church in Missouri and their neighbors, but it's practically impossible when this revelation was given that he knew just how bad things had become. On July 9th, 1833, Oliver Cowdery wrote a letter that we don't have anymore that explained the worsening relations between the saints and their neighbors in Jackson County. Oliver expressed concerns over growing violence in Missouri. These concerns prompted Joseph Smith to write back to Oliver in a letter dated August 6th, 1833. This August 6th letter contains the revelations that are later put into the Doctrine and Covenants as section 94, 97, and 98. And on July 15th, that's just after Oliver sends his first letter, a hostile group in Jackson County, Missouri, issues a manifesto against the saints, declaring their intent to remove the saints from the county, quote, peaceably if we can, forcibly if we must, end quote. Now, although the Lord addresses the Kirtland saints, because remember, there's two church centers this time. There's a group of saints. In fact, most of the saints are in Missouri. And then there's a group of saints with Joseph Smith in Kirtland. The Lord is concerned about things that are happening in both places. Most of the revelation goes to the Missouri saints who are under direct attack. But a lot of them, verses 19 to 21 specifically, also go to the saints in Kirtland who are also under attack in a different way. In June 1833, a bishop's court excommunicated a guy named Dr. Philastus Hurlbut. And he's not a doctor. His first name was Dr. Philastus Hurlbut then becomes a bitter enemy against the church and starts to openly threaten Joseph Smith. In fact, Joseph Smith writes to the leaders of the church in Missouri saying, quote, we are suffering great persecution on account of one man by the name of Dr. Hurlbert, who has been expelled from the church for lewd and adulterous conduct. And despite us, he is lying in a wonderful manner and people are running after him and giving him money to break down Mormonism, which endangers our lives at present, end quote. Now, with both church centers experiencing increasing opposition, Section 98 is the Lord providing counsel to them on how they're supposed to deal with opposition. Oliver Cowdery, after he writes his letter, actually 
uh, travels all the way from Missouri to Kirtland and meets with Joseph Smith just two days after this revelation was sent to the saints in Zion. And when Oliver gets there, Joseph Smith is able to realize the full extent of what's going on in Missouri and just how bad it is. Almost immediately, Joseph Smith dispatches two elders of the church, Orson Hyde and John Gould, to provide assistance to the saints in Missouri. And the difficulties surrounding the saints in Missouri are going to set up the next few sections of the Doctrine and Covenants uh, leading up to section 105. So let's dive in. First of all, um, the first part of the verse, uh, first part of section 98 is kind of a intro to how to deal with adversity. Um, the Lord says, verse one, verily I say unto you, my friends, fear not, let your hearts be comforted, rejoice evermore and in everything give thanks, waiting patiently on the Lord for your ear, your prayers have entered into the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath. Now it's interesting to note that in the middle of all these horrible things that are happening to the saints in Missouri, the Lord's first counsel is give thanks. And that's not bad advice when you're dealing with adverse times is to count your blessings and think about the good things that are happening to you and the blessings that you have. When when Job, for instance, in the Old Testament was struggling, he he pointed out that God still loved him and that he hated and that he was helping him. When his wife urged him to curse God and die, Job responded, shall we receive good at the hand of God and not receive evil? And later on, God is going to compare Joseph Smith to Job and tell him that it is, his adversity is but a small moment. So that's one thing we can always be thankful for is knowing that our adversity in the grand eternal scheme of things is a small moment. Focusing on the good in our lives helps us kind of recognize and overcome our current trials. It also helps if we're patient and try to see the purpose behind it. You might remember that really famous quote from Elder Jeffrey R. Holland, where he said, some blessings come soon, some come late, and some don't come until heaven. But for those who embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, they come. It will be all right in the end. Trust God and believe in good things to come. Now, moving on in verses four through eight, the Lord tells them step two. Once, you're, once you express gratitude for what you still have, uh, see what you can do. Seek help, uh, legal redress. The Lord asked them to um, uh, seek help under the laws of the land. He says, the law of the land, this is verse five, which is constitutional, supporting that principle of freedom and maintaining rights and privileges belongs to all mankind and is justifiable before me. Therefore, I, the Lord, justify you and your brethren of my church in befriending that law, which is the constitutional law of the land. So the Lord here acknowledges the constitution of the United States of America and sets it up as a way for them to achieve redress. Joseph Smith and all the early saints believed that the constitution was wonderful. Joseph Smith at one point said the constitution of the United States is a glorious standard. It's founded in the wisdom of God. It's a heavenly banner. It is to all those who are privileged with the sweets of its liberty, like the cooling shades and refreshing waters of a great rock in a thirsty and weary land. Now, at the same time, uh, this episode and others illustrate that the Constitution is a work in progress. Some of you might remember in the April 2021 General Conference where President Dallin H. Oaks got up, and even though it's a worldwide conference that the church said, I wish to speak about the Constitution of the United States. The saints are supposed to seek redress under the Constitution. In this case, it, it doesn't work. 
Uh, and President Oaks acknowledges that the Constitution is inspired, but it's kind of a work in progress. President Oaks taught, Our belief that the United States Constitution was divinely inspired does not mean that divine revelation dictated every word or phrase, such as provisions allocating the number of representatives from each state or the minimum age of each. The Constitution was not a fully grown document, President Oaks said. And, and a good example of this would be a couple sections later in section 101, the Lord says in verse 79, it's not right that any man should be in bondage one to another. The Lord basically condemned slavery. At the time, the U.S. Constitution allowed for slavery. However, in 1865, the 13th Amendment would be ratified, and that ended the practice of slavery. So they're seeking help from the laws of the land. They're, they're not seeking help on their own. They're trying to appeal to the government, go through the right channels. All right, moving on to verses 9 and 10, the Lord also commands them to not trust too much because he says, when wicked men rule, this is verse 9, the people mourn. Honest and wise men should be sought for diligently, and good and wise men you should observe to uphold. Otherwise, whatsoever is less than these cometh of evil. Now, the saints recognize, too, that they have to seek out the good and honest men of the land that can help them in their problems. When the Lord says a a wicked man causes much sorrow, it's just underlying a principle that's also in the Book of Mormon. Uh, King Mosiah warned, how much iniquity doth one wicked king cause to be omitted? Yea, and what great destruction. Uh, President Dallin H. Oaks, further in that same talk on the Constitution, said, In the United States and in other democracies, political influence is exercised by running for office, which we encourage by voting, by financial support, by membership and service in political parties, and by ongoing communication to officials, parties, and candidates. To function well, a democracy needs all of these, but a conscientious citizen does not need to provide all of them. So again, right at the opening of this, reach out to the government. See what you can do through the proper channels of communication. Then moving on in verses 11 through 15, the Lord tells them, be not afraid of your enemies. I've decreed in my heart that I will prove you in all things, whether you abide my covenant. Some trials come to us just because we do not know exactly what the Lord has in store. He says here, I'm doing this for a reason. Although, and this is sometimes distressing, we don't always know exactly what the reason is. But one thing that the Savior makes clear in this entire revelation is that we are to be people of peace when it comes to him. He says in verse 16, renounce war and proclaim peace and seek diligently to turn the hearts of the children to the fathers and the hearts of the fathers to the children. Verse 18, let not your hearts be troubled for in my father's house are many mansions and I have prepared a place for you and where my father and I am there ye shall be also. So he's pointing us towards something bigger and better. It's interesting here that he quotes Malachi chapter four, verses five and six, because we usually associate that text with work for the dead. And those haven't been revealed. They're not going to be revealed for several more years. But the Savior's saying, look, there is a way out of this, and I'm going to make sure that it works. Now, in verses 19 through 21, as I mentioned earlier, the Savior takes a minute to reprove the church in Kirtland. We need to recognize that at this time, there's only about 150 members of the church in Kirtland. There were probably around 1,000 members of the church in Missouri, but they're dealing with problems too. Trials can come in a lot of different ways. Uh, The Lord reproves the saints in Kirtland for their 
wickedness, for their lack of uh, willingness to chase, to listen to the commandments and forsake their sins. But then he shifts back in verse 23 to the main focus here, which is what do you do if someone is just outright attacking you? The printing office in Missouri has been destroyed. The Lord said, verse 23, now I speak unto you concerning your families. If men will smite you or your families once, and you bear patiently and revile not against them, neither seek revenge, ye shall be rewarded. But if you bear not patiently, it shall be accounted unto you as being meted out as a just measure against you. And you'll note as you go through these verses, the Lord says, bear it a second time and you'll get even more blessings. Bear it a third time and you'll get even more blessings. And then if they continue to come against you, you are justified in standing up against them. He says in verse 28, if that enemy shall escape my vengeance, that he be not brought to judgment before me, then you shall see to it to warn him in my name that he come no more. So warn him and then you can go against him. Verse 31, thine enemy shall be in thy hands. This is what we call the Lord's law of retribution, which is basically when people attack us, when people make offense against us, we are asked to bear it patiently as long as we can. I know that there are situations where you might be worried about your family's safety or your personal safety. And we're not saying you can't defend yourself in the immediate state, but if someone is attacking you and attacks on us today are more likely to come verbally rather than physically like the saints we're dealing with, the saints still are asked to bear it patiently, to to trust in the Lord and to not fight back. Just a good example of this, uh, when the saints in Jackson County were attacked, when the printing press was attacked, uh, the mob ransacked and destroyed the church printing office and then dragged Bishop Edward Partridge and, and another man named Charles Allen to the public square near the courthouse in Independence, Missouri. Now, Bishop Partridge at this point had plenty of reason to be angry. His physical safety was in danger, but Look at how he responds. This is from Bishop Partridge's reminiscence of this. He said, I was stripped of my hat, coat, and vest, and daubed with tar from head to foot, and then had a quantity of feathers put upon me, and all this because I would not agree to leave the county, and my home where I had lived two years. Before tarring and feathering me, I was permitted to speak. I told them that the saints had had to suffer persecution in all ages of the world, that I had done nothing which ought to offend anyone, that if they abused me, they would abuse an innocent person, and that I was willing to suffer for the sake of Christ, but to leave the country, I was not then willing to consent to it. By this time, the multitude made so much noise that I could not be heard. Some were cursing and swearing, saying, call upon your Jesus. Others were equally noisy and trying to still the rest, that they might be able to hear what I was saying. Until I had spoken, I knew not what they intended to do with me, whether to kill me or to whip me or what else I knew not. But I bore my abuse with so much resignation and meekness that it appeared to astound the multitude who permitted me to retire in silence and many looking very solemn, their sympathies having been touched as I thought. And as to myself, I was so filled with the spirit and love of God that I had no hatred towards my persecutors or anyone else. Bishop Partridge's actions uh, in this extreme circumstance demonstrate why the Lord was telling the saints to do this. His meekness in the face of persecution basically disarmed the mob and caused them to back off. Now, in verses 32 to 38, the Lord gives his teaching on war, saying specifically, this is the same law, verse 32, that he gave to Nephi, to Joseph, to Jacob, to Isaac and Abraham, the law, verse 33, that I gave unto mine ancients, that they should not go out into battle against any nation, kindred, tongue, or people, save I, the Lord, had commanded them. 
That's still the law. And by the way, every one of those people from Nephi to Abraham did have to fight at certain times and defend themselves. But the Lord said, you do so when I command you to, not when you want to act on your own passions or your own anger. This is still the law that the church follows. War can be justified if it's given the conditions that are described in verses 32 to 38, but we have to be very cautious that we don't fight for unrighteous reasons. Way, way back in World War II, the First Presidency, who at that time were Heber J. Grant, J. Reuben Clark, and David O. McKay, issued a statement on war. And this is what they said. They said the church is and must be against war. The church itself cannot wage war unless and until the Lord shall issue new commands. It cannot regard war as a righteous means of settling international disputes. These should and could be settled, the nations agreeing by peaceful negotiation and settlement. But you'll note um, there are places in the scriptures where people like Gideon or Captain Moroni or Mormon were great physical leaders uh, and fought in wars, but all of them fought for the right reasons. For instance, the Book of Mormon notes the Nephites were sorry to take up arms against the Lamanites because they did not delight in the shedding of blood. And this was not all. They were sorry to be the means of sending so many of their brethren out of this world into an eternal world unprepared to meet their God. Now, in the same statement um, that was made by the First Presidency was added to by David O. McKay in 1942. This was after the United States entered World War II. President McKay said, there are two conditions which may justify a truly Christian man to enter. Mind you, I say enter, not begin a war. One is an attempt to dominate or deprive another of his free agency. And two is loyalty to a country. He said, there's possibly a third reason And that's defense of a weak nation that's being unjustly crushed by a strong and ruthless one. But President McKay also added this, that the most important reason, paramount among these reasons, he said, is the defense of man's freedom. An attempt to rob man of his free agency caused dissension even in heaven. To deprive an intelligent human of his free agency is to commit the crime of the ages. So fundamental a man's eternal progress is an inherent right to choose that the Lord would defend it even at the price of war. Without freedom of thought, freedom of choice, freedom of action within lawful bounds, man cannot progress. So President McKay gave us a few reasons why we can fight in a war, but we should avoid it whenever possible. And the section, if you go down a little bit further, ends with the Savior just basically saying, look, do everything that you can to forgive. And he seems to make a delineation between fighting back and forgiving. You can fight back and still not hate your enemy. It's possible for us to Uh, Be forgiving uh, towards people that have caused offense to us, even while we move to defend ourselves against the accusations that they may have made or the outright things they've done wrong to us. Joseph Smith and other leaders of the church counseled the, the members of the church in Missouri in a letter that he wrote to them. He said, quote, we advise you. Be not the first aggressors. Give no occasion. And if the people will not will let you dispose of your property, settle your affairs, and go in peace, go. You know our feelings relative to not giving the first offense and also protecting your wives and little ones in case a mob should seek their lives. Be wise. Let prudence dictate all your counsels. Preserve peace with all men if possible. Stand by the constitution of your country. Observe its principles. And above all, show yourselves men of God, worthy citizens. And we doubt not... Ere long, will do you justice and rise in indignation against those instigators of suffering affliction. So, in the middle of this, we've got this obligation, the Lord says, to try and settle things peacefully. We, we basically accept the offense, one, two, three. If it continues to come, we can act in defense, but never in a spirit of hatred or anger or bloodlust. We have to be able to forgive them because while fighting monsters, we don't want to become monsters ourselves.
Now, let's move on to section 99 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Section 99 and section 100 are kind of a break in the middle of this complexity of Missouri. And part of the reason why section 99 doesn't mention anything about Missouri is because this uh, revelation is actually in the wrong place in the Doctrine and Covenants. Uh, when the Doctrine and Covenants was put together, there was a, a, a slip-up made, and section 99, which is a revelation given to John Murdoch, uh, actually should be between section 83 and section 84 chronologically, if you're looking at it. So take this as a little break, but there's still some important stuff in here and recognition of one of the great, great men of this early dispensation. That's John Murdoch. John Murdoch is one of the first people converted in the Kirtland area when Oliver Cowdery and the first missionaries come to the area in November 1830. Now, John um, becomes a stalwart disciple of Jesus Christ, remains so for the rest of his life, but he also has to deal with some serious suffering. For instance, uh, on April 30th, 1831, just after a couple months after John and his wife, Julia, joined the church, John loses his wife, Julia. Julia dies while giving birth to twins, a boy and a girl. The same day that Julia Murdoch is giving birth to twins, Emma Smith uh, in the same town is giving birth to her twins. In the Murdoch's case, Julia died. In the Smith's case, Emma lived, but the twins died. So jo- uh, so John Murdoch basically approached Joseph Smith and asked him if he would adopt the twins. They named the girl twin Julia after her mother, and the male twin, Joseph, after Joseph Smith. So Joseph Murdoch Smith. These are the first kids that Joseph and Emma raise. In fact, Julia is the first child that grows up to adulthood. Uh, Unfortunately, the little infant Joseph Murdoch Smith dies uh, a few months later when he contracts measles and his condition is exacerbated when he's exposed to the cold when a mob attacks Joseph Smith and drags him out to be tarred and feathered. Now, in in section 99, uh, John has left on a mission to the east, and his children um, have been instructed, he's been instructed to get his family to send them to Missouri. So John actually arranges for Caleb Baldwin, who's going to show up later on in church history, to take his kids to Missouri. And John is planning on serving a mission and then joining him. Unfortunately, circumstances um, intervene, and it's two years before John is able to see his kids again when he finally makes it to Missouri, marching with Zion's camp. He gets there um, and is only able to to meet his kids just in time before his daughter dies. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Okay. Now, looking at the section, this is like a nice short little section to just tell you about this this wonderful, wonderful man. Uh, the Lord says, thou art called to go into the Eastern countries. He's calling him on a mission. But the Lord also tells him uh, a little bit further, verse six, it's not expedient that you should go until your children are provided for and sent up kindly unto the bishop in Zion. So before John leaves on his mission, he does spend three months with his children and arranges for them to be taken care of by the bishop in Zion, who's Edward Partridge and Caleb Baldwin, who's going to take care of them while they travel to Zion. Then John's going to get there as fast as he can, as when he's done with his mission. Like I mentioned, it's two years before he gets there. Now, the situation is is complex. Uh, the family caring for John's oldest kids while he was on his first mission uh, leave the church and insisted that John pay them for taking care of his kid. Uh, his other kids, he gathers them together, including his next son, John, and his daughter, Phoebe, and sends them to Missouri. When he gets back, he also finds out for the first time that the baby, Joseph Murdoch Smith, has passed away. John records, when the prophet was hauled out of bed by a mob in Hiram, Ohio, the child having measles lay in bed with him, and that time they stripped the cloth off the child. He took cold and died. So he's already 
really, really uh, despairing because he lost one of his children. He writes in his journal, they are in the Lord's hands. Now, a few years later, John travels to Zion in order to find out how his kids are and as part of Zion's camp to help them. When he gets there, he finds out that his two boys, Oris and, and John, are doing well, but finds out that his daughter, Phoebe, has taken sick with cholera, which is one of the deadliest diseases at the time. Uh, John later writes, I've seen all my children in good health, but the destroyer commenced his work. I immediately went and took care of her until July 6th, when the spirit left the body just at the break of day, being six years, three months, and 27 days old. Uh, Phoebe passes away, but John's two older sons live to adulthood and serve with distinction in the church. Now, there's an interesting note in here, because in section 99, verse 2, the Lord tells John, Whoso receiveth you, receiveth me. And just a couple months after this promise is given, John's in a meeting with the school of the prophets, and he literally receives the Savior. John Murdoch is not well known. He's not super famous. He never became an apostle or anything like that. But he is one of the people in our dispensation that saw the Savior. John writes that in the spring of 1833, about a year after this revelation is given, in one of those meetings, the prophet told us if we would humble ourselves before God and exercise strong faith, we should see the face of the Lord. And about midday, the visions of my mind were open and the eyes of my understanding were enlightened. And I saw the form of a man, the Savior, most lovely. The visage of his face was sound and fair as the sun. His hair was a bright silver gray, curled in the most majestic form. His eyes a keen penetrating blue, and the skin of his neck a most beautiful white. And he was covered from the neck to the feet with a loose garment, pure white, whiter than any garment you've ever seen. His countenance was most penetrating, and yet most lovely. And while I was endeavoring to complete to comprehend the whole personage from head to feet, it slipped from me and the vision was closed up. But it left on my mind the impression of love for months that I never felt before to that degree. Now, John reunites with his kids. He, he saves his two sons. In fact, my parents' hometown, Beaver, Utah, is where um, both John Murdoch's son, who has a big giant headstone there, is buried, and also the John Murdoch, Section 99 John Murdoch. John goes on to be one of the first missionaries to Australia. He's a patriarch in the church, and he's buried in Beaver, Utah. I actually visited his grave last summer, pointed at it, and told my kids, there is a person that saw the Savior. Now, moving on, section 100 is in the right order, but it's a little bit of a break uh, from the Missouri saga. Joseph and Sidney Rigdon are asked to travel to a place called Perrysburg, New York, at the request of several people there who want them to come and preach the gospel. And you get the feeling that they go, but they're a little hesitant to go. When Joseph Smith gets to Perrysburg, he writes in his journal, I feel very well in my mind. The Lord is with us, but I have much anxiety about my family. You might remember that uh, Joseph's family is being threatened by Dr. Philastus Hurlbut, and Joseph is worried about what's going to happen to them while he's gone. So you'll note in verse 1 of section 100, the Lord says, Verily I say unto you, my friends Sidney and Joseph, your families are well. They are in my hands, and I will do with them as seemeth me good, for there is still in me much power. Follow me, listen to my counsel, which I shall give unto you. And the Lord tells them, I've much people in this place and in the regions round about, and an effectual door shall be opened in the regions round about in this eastern land, wherefore I, the Lord, have suffered you to come to this place, for it was expedient for me in the salvation of the souls. So, two things. The Lord's saying, I'm going to take care of your families, it's okay, and I need you to be here because something important is going to happen. While Joseph Smith is there, they, they stay in the home um, of a guy named Freeman Nickerson. They convert his two sons, Moses and Eleazar. They also convert a lady named Lydia Bailey. 
uh, who later on marries Noel Knight, one of Joseph's first converts and closest friends. They convert several people there. And in saying that the door was going to be opened, two years later, Parley P. Pratt, another missionary, comes to the region teaching the gospel. He travels with Freeman Nickerson, the guy they stay with, goes to Toronto, and it converts hundreds of people to the church. In fact, among the converse of the church are John Taylor, who's going to be a future president of the church, and Mary Fielding, who's going to marry Hiram Smith and be the mother of a future president of the church, Joseph F. Smith, and the grandmother of another president of the church, Joseph Fielding Smith. So the effectual door is a big deal, a big deal. Um, and Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon get a lot out of this mission. The Lord tells them, verse 8, I give it to this promise, inasmuch as you do this, the Holy Ghost shall be shed forth and bearing record. And the Holy Ghost really does manifest itself during their time in Perrysburg. Lydia uh, Knight, who at this time is called Lydia Goldthwaite, uh, talks about how she was in a meeting and she was enveloped with a flame, was no longer able to retain her seat and rose and her mouth was filled with praises of God and his glory. In fact, Lydia is an interesting person to focus on here. Uh, Section 100 is received around the time that Lydia is converted. And Lydia is... um, at this time, uh, kind of an abandoned wife. She's been married, but her husband has abandoned her. And that is just a mark of, of stigma and shame in the in the 1830s. She's basically a divorced member of the church. And even today, divorced members of the church sometimes struggle to feel acceptance. I think the way Joseph Smith treats Lydia is, is a great example here. Um, Joseph Smith, according to Lydia Knight, takes her side and says, I've been pondering on Sister Lydia's lonely condition and wondering why it is that she's passed through so much sorrow and affliction and is thus separated from her relatives. I now understand it. The Lord has suffered it even as he allowed Joseph of old to be afflicted, who was sold by his brethren as a slave to a far country, and through it to become a savior to his house and his country, even so shall it be with her, Lydia. The hand of the Lord will overrule it to the good for her and her father's family. And Joseph Smith gives her a blessing. Now, a couple years later, Later, Lydia moves to Kirtland, and she meets and falls in love with Newell Knight, who's one of Joseph's close friends. Uh, Newell's first wife passed away, and Lydia and Newell fall in love, and Joseph Smith performs their marriage. In fact, in their marriage, um, Joseph Smith actually says, marriage was an institution first solemnized in the Garden of Eden by God himself, by the authority of the everlasting priesthood. It's kind of interesting that the first hint Joseph Smith gives in a marriage ceremony that marriage is eternal and everlasting comes to a woman who's been abandoned by her husband, a divorcee, basically, and a widower, someone that's lost his wife. Um, Lydia and Newell have a happy family. Uh, she stays in the church. Newell passes away in 1847 during the Trek West, but she makes it to Utah and stays in the church into 1880. In fact, the Knights become a really important family in the territory. Now, a few other things. The rest of the section talks about Sidney being a spokesman and then addresses in verses 13 through 17, probably the biggest thing that's on their mind. They are still just worried about the saints of Missouri and what's happening with them. So the Lord to comfort them says in verse 13, now I give unto you this word concerning Zion. Zion shall be redeemed though she is chastened for a little season. My brother and my servants Orson Hyde and John Gould are in my hands. Inasmuch as they keep my commandments, they shall be saved. You remember, Orson and John are the two people Joseph sends to Missouri when he finds out what's going on there, after Oliver shows up to tell him. But the Lord also gives them this warning. Zion's going to be redeemed, but be chastened for a little season. And then in verse 16, I will raise up unto myself a pure people that will serve me in righteousness. He's hinting that it might not be as easy to redeem Zion as they think it might be. 
So let's go from there and jump on to verse section 101. Section 101 is a major section, and the context is really important here too. So after those persecutions that start in the summer of 1833, uh, the, the, things calm down for a couple of weeks, and then they spike again. Uh, the, the leaders of the mob in Missouri basically uh, tell the saints that they have a few months to leave. They give them an ultimatum. Um, this militia, Parley P. Pratt says, were just mob members, basically. And they tell the saints that they have until X date to get out of Missouri, that they are going to uh, basically continue to attack them unless they pack up and leave. And word reaches Joseph Smith that the mob attacks have started again uh, in November of 1833, right before this revelation is given. Upon hearing the suffering of the saints in Missouri, uh, church leaders in Kirtland are just overwhelmed. And they don't know what to do. Lucy Mack Smith uh, said she remembered that upon hearing this news, Joseph was overwhelmed with grief. He burst into teared and, tears and sobbed aloud, Oh, my brethren, my brethren, would that I have been with you to share my fate. What shall I do in such a trial as this? Oliver Cowdery, who's still with Joseph, is especially worried because his wife, Elizabeth, is still in Missouri, and he doesn't know what's happened to her, if she's alive or dead. In fact, he writes an emotional letter to her that we still have access to. He writes, God only knows the feelings of my heart as I address a few lines to you. My prayers ascending daily and hourly to God that you and I may be spared and yet enjoy each other's society in this life in peace. Joseph Smith writes an emotional letter to Edward Partridge and the other leaders of the church in Jackson County. Uh, he wrote, I cannot learn from any communication by the spirit to me that Zion has forfeited her claim to a celestial crown, notwithstanding the Lord has caused her to be afflicted. But he also says, there are two things of which I am ignorant and the Lord will not show to me, perhaps for a wise purpose in himself. The two questions Joseph Smith says the Lord will show to him is one, why God has suffered so great a calamity to come upon Zion and what the great moving cause of this affliction is. So why is this happening and what's the purpose? Now, that's the context for section 101, which comes a few days later in response to the pleading of the leaders of the church in Kirtland. Um, Ira Ames, who's a member of the church in Kirtland, says that he just one day came to Joseph Smith's home in Kirtland and found Joseph and Oliver Cowdery eating breakfast together. Oliver greeted the pair, jumped up and said, Good morning, brethren, we've received news from heaven. And the date of that uh, seems to correspond with when section 101 was received. So let's take a look at section 101. First off, the Lord starts by addressing why the saints in Missouri have suffered persecution. Verse 2, I, the Lord, have suffered the affliction to come upon them, wherewith they have been afflicted in consequence of their transgressions. The Lord says, I allowed this to happen because of the transgressions of the members of the church in Missouri. Verse 4, they must needs be chastened and tried even as Abraham. But he also says in verse 6, there were jarrings and contentions and envying and strifes and lustful and covetous desires among them. Therefore, by these things, they polluted their inheritances. They were slow to hearken unto the voice of the Lord their God. Therefore, the Lord their God is slow to hearken unto their prayers to answer them in the day of their trouble. In the day of their peace, this is verse 8, they esteemed lightly my counsel, but in the day of their trouble, of necessity, they feel after me. In other words, he's basically saying, you guys didn't receive my protection because you fought amongst yourselves. This is in answer to the question Joseph Smith asked of why has this tribulation caused to come upon Zion? Now, a big part of it is that the Lord says, I have to chasten you and try you even as Abraham. It's difficult to be a saint. But he also tells them, look, if you had kept the commandments and been a little bit more faithful, I could have offered you protection. Now, this is not excusing the behavior of the men in the mob. 
In verse 9, the Savior says, my bowels are filled with compassion towards the saints. But in verse 11, he says, my indignation will soon be poured out without measure upon all nations. And this I do when their cup of iniquity is full. So I'm going to get around to punishing the mob for what they're doing. But in the meantime, you guys look to yourselves. Now, in speaking frankly to the saints about their shortcomings, the Lord's not condoning the actions of the mob members that attacked the church in Missouri. The mob members acted cruelly and illegally when they expelled the saints. And there were manifestations of God's power among the saints, even as they're leading and leaving Jackson County. For instance, Philo Dibble, a member of the church in Missouri, is badly wounded in a, a skirmish with the mob in Missouri, and he's about to die. He He said, David Whitmer, remember David's one of the three witnesses, sent me word that I should live and not die, but I could see no possible chance to recover. After a surgeon had left me, brother Newell Knight came to see me and sat down on the side of my bed. He laid his right hand on my head, but never spoke. I spelt I felt the spirit resting upon me that the crown of my head before his hand touched me. I knew immediately that I was going to be healed. It seemed to form like a ring under the skin and followed down on my body. When the ring came to the wound, another ring formed around the first bullet hole, also the second and the third. Then a ring formed on each shoulder and each hip and followed down to the ends of my fingers and toes and left me. I immediately rose and discharged three quarts of blood or more, and some pieces of my clothes had been driven into my body by bullets. I then dressed and went outdoors and saw the falling of the stars, which so encouraged the saints and frightened their enemies." What Philo Dibble is talking about is a meteor shower that happens in November 1833 that the saints witnessed in Kirtland, Missouri. The saints see this meteor shower as a sign that God is still with them. In fact, uh, Liza Partridge, one of the saints in Missouri, said, I saw the stars fall. They came down almost as thick as snowflakes and could be seen till the daylight hid them from sight. Some of our enemies thought the judgment of God had come and were very much frightened, but the saints rejoiced and considered it a sign of latter days. And she's actually right. Some people among the mob um, thought that the meteor shower was a divine sign that what they'd done was wrong. The saints saw it as a divine sign that God was still with them. In fact, we have a record of one uh, Jackson County resident, Josiah Craig, who said, I saw the meteor shower and it caused many of his neighbors to wonder whether after all the Mormons might not be in the right and whether this was not a sign sent from heaven as a remonstrance for the injustice they had been guilty of towards the chosen sect. Now, In the question of Zion and what's going to happen to Zion, because remember, Independence, Missouri is the place where Zion is going to be built. The Lord tells them, verse 16, let your hearts be comforted concerning Zion for all flesh is in my hands. Be still and know that I'm God. Zion shall not be moved out of her place. Lord declares that Jackson County is still going to be the place for the city of Zion. And he hasn't changed this at any place that I'm aware of. Now, Zion is broadened as a concept. And when we say Zion in the church today, we usually aren't talking about Jackson County, but I just want to point out that here the Lord says Zion's not moved. And I don't know of any place in Revelation where he changes that. So someday we are going to build a city and the temples there. But the Lord is pointing us towards bigger things. Go to verse 22. He starts to talk about the millennium. He says, every corruptible thing, verse 24, man or beast of the field shall be consumed. And then he starts to talk about the blessings of the millennium, like verse 30. Uh, In that day, an infant shall not die until he's old, and his life shall be as the age of the tree. And when he dies, he shall not sleep, that is to say, in the earth, but shall be changed in the twinkling of an eye. All the things that the saints are worried about, uh, death, sorrow, are addressed in verses 28 to 31, where the Lord saying, have patience, we will live in a time and see a time when death goes away and Satan doesn't have power anymore, but not till after the second coming of the Savior. Now, there's a few more 
really interesting verses here, like verse 32, where he also says of the millennium, in that day, the Lord will reveal all things. Verse 33, things which have passed, hidden things which no man knew, things of the earth by which it was made, and the purpose and end thereof, things most precious, things that are above, things that are beneath, things that are in the earth, upon the earth, and in heaven. I mean, what an amazing time to be alive. I'm going to ask the Lord about dinosaurs and ask him to explain things within the earth. And then my next round of question is going to be about the greater universe. There's just this abundance of knowledge. In the Old Testament, the prophet Habakkuk said, the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters cover the sea. That is really something we all have to look forward to. And sometimes the Savior has to pull us out of the midst of our complexity and say, look, there are good things coming. Hang in there. You might have to hang in there till the millennium happens, but good things are going to happen to you and for you. Now, the Savior then addresses a couple other things. Verse 37, care not for the body, neither the life of the body, but care for the soul and for the life of the soul and seek the face of the Lord always. He starts to address again this idea that the saints weren't really worried about themselves spiritually and now they're in danger physically. The Savior wants them to know that they're going to be okay, but that might not mean physically. Joseph Smith actually writes a letter to the saints of Missouri where he addresses the same idea. He wrote and said, when I contemplate on all the things that have been manifested, I am sensible enough that I ought not to murmur and do not murmur only in this, that those who are innocent are compelled to suffer for the iniquities of the guilty. And I cannot account for this only on the wise saying that the savior has not been strictly observed. If thy right, I offend thee, pluck it out. And cast it from thee, or if thy right arm offend thee, pluck it off and cast it from thee. Now, the fact is, if any members of our church are disordered, the rest of the body will be affected with them. And then all is brought into bondage together. And notwithstanding all this, it is with difficulty that I can restrain my feelings when I know that you, my brethren, with whom I've had so many happy hours, sitting as it were in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, and also having the witness which I feel, even have felt the purity of your motives, are cast out as strangers and pilgrims on the earth, exposed to hunger, cold, nakedness and peril sword. Now I say when I contemplate this, it is with difficulty that I can keep from complaining and murmuring against this dispensation, but I'm sensible that this is not right. And may God grant you, notwithstanding your great afflictions and sufferings, that there may not anything separate us from the love of Christ. That's a beautiful letter. And Joseph Smith is just saying, hey, there are people that were guilty of doing wrong things. And that's why this is happening. But sometimes innocent people get dragged into the complexity, too, that comes from the sins of others. Joseph Smith is saying, hang in there, and the Lord will help you. Now, starting in verse 43, the Lord presents a parable. The Savior likes to speak in parables. And in this particular case, in verses 43 to 54, he gives a parable about the land of Zion. Now, he mentions specifically that this is concerning the redemption of Zion. That's verse 43. But the parable, in a nutshell, says that a nobleman had a, a, a grove of 12 trees and asked his servants to look after him. Now, it's pretty clear uh, that the nobleman in most of the Savior's parable is the Savior. The 12 trees, 12 is a number often associated with the house of Israel and most likely represents the saints in Jackson County. In the parable, the watchman failed to build the watchtower. The, the watchmen are probably leaders of the Church of Missouri. The tower is undoubtedly the temple. The saints didn't make a ton of progress on the temple. And in the parable, the Lord instructs the saints to build the, the tower. They don't build it. And so 
the enemy gets into the grove and destroys the trees. Now, in the second part of the parable, picking up in verse 55, the Lord said unto his servants, go and gather together the residue of my servants. Take all the strength of mine house, which are my warriors, my young men, they that are of middle age among my servants, which are the strength of my house. Save those only whom I have appointed to tarry. And go ye straightway into the land of my vineyard and redeem my vineyard, for it is mine. This is a reference to something that's going to happen in the next Come Follow Me block. That is the call of Zion's camp. Section 103 is the official call of Zion's camp uh, for them to go down to Missouri and try and help and assist the saints, which Joseph Smith does. Uh, He takes several important people with him, and they they leave with the idea that when they get there, the miracles are going to happen and the saints are going to be restored to their homes. Now, that doesn't happen, but the Lord has other purposes in mind in calling together all these men and sending them on a mission where they have to spend several months under the tutelage and learning of Joseph Smith. The Lord goes on to basically say in verses 63 down to 75 that the saints will receive recompense for what's happened to them. He also warns them, um, verse 72, let all the churches gather together, all their monies, let things be done in their time, but not in haste and observe to have all things prepared for for you. This is going to come into play a little bit when the saints ignore this command in their gathered to Kirtland. See, Missouri suffers from outward persecution. Kirtland struggles in a few years because of inward problems, because too many saints show up in Kirtland and they don't have a way to pay for everybody to have land and farms. And so they have to set up a bank and that causes problems. Now, jumping down to verse uh, 76, the Lord says, you have been scattered by your enemies, but it's my will that you should continue to importune for redress, redemption by the hands of those who are placed as rulers and authority over you, according to the laws and constitutions of the people, which I've suffered to be established and should be maintained for the rights and protection of all flesh. Again, if you can seek legal recourse, the constitution is a good document. It will help you. Joseph Smith at one point says, I'm the greatest advocate of the Constitution of the U.S. that there is on the earth. But he also saw that the Constitution needed to be enforced without discrimination towards religious thoughts or backgrounds. Now, coming up at the end of the section in verses 81 to verse 101, the Lord likens the children of Zion to the parable of a woman and an unjust judge, for men ought always to pray and not faint. The likening of the parable to the unjust judge is comparing to a parable found in Luke 18, 1 through 8. This parable in Luke 18 can be interpreted in different ways, but the parable's central message seems to continue to endure when you're engaged in a good cause, to do what you're supposed to do. Just like the unjust judge in the parable, the unjust officials of Missouri refused for a long time to help the saints, but it was still important for them to do things right, to do things legally, through rather than trying to get their land back through force and violence. Joseph Smith writes a letter to the saints in Missouri where he addresses this parable as well. He says, this is my counsel. Did you retain your land even to the uttermost and seek every lawful means to seek redress of your enemies and pray to God day and night to return you in peace and safety to the lands of your inheritance? And when the judge fails you, appeal to the executive. And when the executive fails you, appeal to the president. And when the president fails you and all laws fail you and the humanity, the people fails you and all things else fail you, but God alone 
You continue to weary him with your importunings, as the poor woman did the unjust judge. He will not fail to execute judgment upon your enemies and to avenge his own elect that cry unto him day by day and night. So again, it goes back to that first principle we talked about. The Lord has our best welfare in mind, but sometimes it doesn't come in the time frame and in the way that we exactly expected. The saints in Jackson County probably didn't imagine that it would be years, decades. Here it is almost two centuries later, and we still haven't fully been reestablished in Jackson County. But the Lord had other things in mind. And the Lord's overarching principle is that these afflictions are a way of purifying and rooting out of us those selfish desires and sometimes unkind feelings that we have in our hearts. It's not a question of if persecution is going to come to you for being a disciple of Jesus Christ. It's a question of when it's going to come. And when it comes, if we respond with kindness and with goodness, if we don't allow these experiences to harden our hearts and cause us to doubt our faith, these experiences can become redemptive. They can help us draw closer to the Savior and help us become like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The Savior wants us to be happy, but he also needs us to be pure. And sometimes affliction is the way that he purifies us. Now that's going to lead into the next Come Follow Me block where we talk about Zion's camp and the expectations we sometimes have in our lives. I want to leave you with my testimony that I know God loves us that when we face afflictions and sorrows, there's a way for us to get through it if we'll exercise faith in God and Jesus Christ, that we can be safe and we can find happiness even in the midst of afflictions and that the Lord, as always, is watching over us. Thanks for listening to our podcast. I hope that you have a great week and enjoy your feasting in the scriptures. And I will see you next time. My name's Casey Griffiths. Bye-bye. One of the most intriguing aspects of our church's history is that it is still being discovered. Just as early Christians sought out pieces of the cross or searched for the location of Noah's Ark, it is natural for members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to seek to interact with their history. The objects in this book constitute a glimpse at the richness of days gone by and allow us to see, heft, and handle those now priceless objects that our forebears did. 50 Relics of the Restoration highlights the history of the church through sacred objects gathered throughout its history. Included with the objects are some of the most vivid and interesting stories of the Latter-day Saints, which allow those who read them to interact with their beloved forebears and become a part of history. 50 Relics of the Restoration by Casey Paul Griffiths and Mary Jane Woodger, available at cedarfort.com.